Hi, it's Neil Cohen, and you're listening to Spoiler Country. It's the place to be. It's time to enter the Spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick and Jeff. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on Spoilerverse.com. But... If you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcaster, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us or use a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. Citizens of the Podcast Universe. Welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Johnny Horsley, and today on the show, we got a returning guest, Neil Cohen, coming on to talk with Jeff about his book, American Gargoyles. Now, you might remember Neil from a previous set of episodes with uh, Zach Norman talking about the movie Chief Zabu, and he comes back on to talk about American Gargoyles with Jeff. They have a great time, so let's not waste any time. Let's get into it. So here is Neil and Jeff in their own words. Hello, listeners of Spoiler Country. Today on the show, we had the fantastic return, Mr. Neil Cohen. How's it going, Mr. Cohen? Uh, it's doing great. It's talking to you. I mean, it's fantastic. <laughs> it's great. It's definitely my pleasure to have you back on. I had a great time talking to you about Chief Zabu with Zach Norman. That it was a very good time, I think, had by all of us. Yeah, no, that was great. And, uh, you know, Zach and I were in two different locations and both of us talked too much. So we hope we didn't melt the brains of your listeners by talking over each other the whole time. No, I, I, I think that was perfect. Like I said, I enjoyed listening to you guys talking to sit back and go, let them do this. They, 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 <laughs> they, you guys kind of seem like that perfect comedy duo that you just can sit back and watch them do this, their routine. And I just enjoyed it. I sat back and said, yeah, do your show, guys. <laughs> it, it, it's remarkable because I, I can't express to you the phobia I had before this selling thing of hearing my voice, being on stage, any of that kind of stuff. And uh, that kind of forced me into doing it. And now I'm, I'm digging it as long <laughs> as I don't watch the playback. I'm, I'm fine, you know? You know, I'm in the totally same boat. I must admit... The, the one issue I always have is that when I do interviews, I realize I cannot listen to them. So uh-huh. during when I'm, I'm not doing interviews or working, I, I just go, when I go take my dog for a walk, I always put on a Spoiler Country interview and listen to it while I walk. But if I'm doing the interview, I can't listen to it. So I'm like, uh-huh. crap, that one's off my list. Come on with another one. Because once again, there's something about, I think, hearing your own voice sometimes on um, one of these shows that sometimes is you catch yourself making errors. I think, and you listen... Yeah more closely to your own speech than you would the other guy just talking. Exactly. And it is a weird kind of, it's a weird kind of ego thing that you get into because who cares what you sound like? (laughs) 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 I mean, if the person listening to it doesn't care, 
you know, am I supposed to suddenly uh, sound like uh, Alfred Hitchcock or Brad Pitt <laughs> or something? You know, if they want Brad Pitt, they're not coming to Neil Cohen. So, right, right, uh, right. <laughs> the nice thing about being the host, too, is that I realize that no one really gives a shit what I'm saying. They're here to listen to you, the guest. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm pretty, I've, I've realized, you know, you know, the more I can sit back and let the guest speak, the better off everything is. Because like, like I said, I'm pretty sure the listener is not like, I wonder what Jeff is thinking right now. They're, they're thinking, what is Neil Cohen thinking right now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it's also when I'm doing one of these where I, it's the video is being broadcast, I get into a certain behavior that is so not me. <laughs> <laughs> And it's because I've never had any training as an actor or performer or comedian or anything like that. So I'm trying to be, I mean, it's, it's a 4% adjustment, but it's a 4% adjustment. So for the worst (laughs) 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 that I'm glad people are just hearing this voice and not seeing me trying to, I don't know what, you know, well, once again, if anyone ever notices that my interview on my end is never on video, I hide uh-huh. my anonymity between and just my voice. I do not stay on camera, and there's reasons for that. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I think the coolest thing about the interview that I had with you and Mr. Norman is that you sent me a copy of your book, American mm-hmm. Hard Oils, and let me. Not only did you send it to me. But you autographed it and put in a message. I thought that was one of the coolest things that has happened since I've done these interviews. I'm trying to think back. I do not think anyone has ever sent me an autographed piece of their work as as um, uh, a thank you for doing the interview. And I thought that was phen- phenomenal. And I actually had the privilege of reading it. I sat and I, and I read and I read American Gore Girls. And I thought once again it was an extremely fun book. While the audience I, for the book, as far as I can tell, is pr- for a younger audience. I think there was. There's enough jokes, I think, and references to people such as Donald Trump, as we'll get into later, that as an adult, I was like, I see what you did there, and that was damn smart. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I thank you so much for sending that over to me. And obviously... Well, it's, talk- fun to, you know, it's fun to inscribe it and do a little drawing inside. I mean, uh, doing drawings is my happy space in my brain and in my life, you know? So the idea that somebody I like is asking for a, a copy with an inscription in it and uh, some crazy little drawing that I do, that, that lowers the biorhythm. That, that's very relaxing. Well, I'm glad. So for our listeners, can, yeah. can you give them their pitch of what is American Gargoyles and what inspired yeah, you to but, write it? Yeah, yeah. So American Gargoyles is a picture book about the gargoyles, the, you know, the statuary, the, the, the decorations on that they used to put on all the old buildings. And so it's on, uh, th- these gargoyles are on a old art deco building in a place like New York or Chicago or some American urban place. And instead of European gargoyles that may be uh, fairies or gods or saints, these are very American characters. There's a football player, there's a businessman, there's a, a, a musician, some kind of crazy half squirrel, half bat. And in a lot of the buildings in the New World, they would put kind of 
American vernacular type characters up on the buildings, not the kind of buildings you might see in Paris and London. Well, these gargoyles find out that their building is going to get knocked down and they're a very bickering crowd of urban types yeah. and they have to pull together and get along with each other and figure out some harebrained scheme that they're going to save their building. And they're going to save their building from a guy named uh, a developer named uh, Donald Hairdo, who is has the interest of uh, turning the building into one giant mirror so he can look at himself all day. <laughs> so they come up with some crazy scheme and it's and it's become a, a kind of fun book. Yeah. So the, the building in question the mentioned in the book is the Wentworth building. And right. that is a, new, a real New York building. Is that correct? No, but it's kind of based on the Woolworth building, Woolworth. which is covered with these kind of businessmen and sports figures and very tugboat operators. I mean, all the, the statuary that's carved on that building. Also, the cathedral up near Columbia University has astronauts on it, has all kinds of crazy American types. So it, it's based on those kind of buildings that, that you might see. I'm, I'm sure there's, you know, such things in Cleveland and Boston and uh, Pittsburgh, you know, everywhere. And like I said, and, and I really love the themes that were involved in the book. And like I said, while the Wentworth is one of the focus, one of the focuses in the book, I really feel like the book and the Wentworth itself represents kind of like history and art. And I feel like yeah. it kind of works against a sense of maybe a, the cookie, cu cookie cutter world, assembly line world that we're living in. And that I felt that you wanted us to look back and go, there's something to be said about this kind of style and history that we're losing. Is, is yeah, that well, you know, a part of the joke at the beginning of the book is you see the Wentworth building when it was built and, you know, people are the size of ants and everyone's looking up at it and it's the, the biggest and most uh, famous uh, building in the city. And then in the next panel, you see it's actually now a tiny building surrounded by gigantic glass skyscrapers and uh, everybody forgot that the building's even there. Yeah. So it is about history and how, you know, hey, look, one day you're up and one day you're down <laughs> or one day you're down and you never get up. But this building had its moment and now it's covered in soot and forgotten and uh, everyone's moved on until it's going to get knocked down because the gargoyles, it's their home. And they can't move on. So they got to figure out some crazy way to save it. You know, it reminds me of where I live in Rhode Island. In Providence, mm -hmm. there's, what's, there's a very famous building. Yeah. That we call it the Superman building because it mm. looks very much like the Superman I, building from the old 1940s cartoon. When, he, when he's jumping over it, it looks very similar. Yeah. And the building, for the last I know of it, is for some years now has been abandoned. And no one's bought it and has been allowed to start falling apart. But it was mm -hmm. such an important part of Providence and our identity, the Superman building, that it's a, it's a shame that we let it go. And when you, I was reading the Wentworth story in your book, I thought, Jesus Christ, that is the Superman building. It's that, minus Gargoyle, but it felt the same thing to me. Yeah, well, there's, you know, a lot of great buildings that were in Manhattan that are no longer. And there's a little homage to them at the beginning of the book, some uh, uh, old postcards you see of some of these buildings that were once great, like the Singer Sewing Machine building is no longer there. It was a great building down in lower Manhattan. And then, you know, after they knocked down Penn Station in New York, the nobody could believe such a thing could actually happen, that such a magnificent structure would get demolished to, and to be replaced by 
the quite horrific Madison Square Garden that we have now, that that kind of sparked the whole historic and architectural preservation movement around the country. And, and, and so coming off of that, a lot of these great old buildings have been saved. And what's interesting is, you know, a lot of young people, it's not, you know, old crazy people like me. It's a lot of young people <laughs> in their towns, whether it's in, because I communicate now through the book, yeah. I'm communicating to a lot of young people in places like Chattanooga and Memphis and Charlotte, North Carolina you know, who are actively trying to save uh, the great old downtowns in their communities. And I, and I said, and I really do think the book, not only is it the book fun and colorful, but I I really did love the themes within themes of that book. Cause you had the character like Rocky and a story Mm -hmm. about being brave because he was a bread chef with uh, a bread cook. And I, and I thought that was such a good story about being brave and the importance of overcoming their, their one's own doubt and fears. And, yeah. and, and I thought, was one of your goals when you thought about, because I know the Wentworth was the focus, but did you think to yourself, you know, I want all these kids to see themselves in these characters and see their own issues in these stories as well? Well, you, actually, the drawings originally started, and, and the character he's starting uh, telling you about is a character who's holding a football, and he's a tough-looking guy with a old-school 1920s uh, football helmet, and he, you know, purports to be the, the bravest guy in the city, and uh, nothing scares him, and then you find out he's very, very timid, and you find out that he was never supposed to be carved as a football player. He was supposed to be a chef. But the stone carver looked the wrong way, knocked the hat off. So they uh, carved that into a helmet and they turned the bread into a football. Not that I haven't known a lot of very brave bakers, but the, the way the thing started is it started from the characters and then the story evolved. And probably the last thing I conceived of was the building. I mean, I knew they were on a building. Yeah, yeah. But the first thing I did was the characters. And uh, I mean, the whole book itself uh, came out of, it came out of the fact that I was doing a very big job. It was like my big break. I was doing a very big job for HBO and it was going to be made into a very important show and a series. This is some probably 15 years ago. And uh, there was casting, there was a director, it's a typical Hollywood story. And then the thing got pancaked two weeks before it was supposed to start. And the job abruptly ended. But part of the thing of the job was they gave me an office which is something I had never had before. I had an office. Yeah, yeah. And it, wasn't, and it wasn't at the studio lot. They said, here's some extra money. Go get yourself an office. So I got this crazy office on top of a bar in uh, Santa Monica. You had to walk through the bar, go through a secret door, go up a flight of stairs. It was an old building from the 1920s. And there were a bunch of crazy offices with people crazy like me in each of these offices. So I was in this environment that was very historic. And they said, oh, yeah, and we're taking back the office. And so mm-hmm. I, had, I had like, I don't know, it was like three more weeks to have this office. So I said, gee, I, I mean, I'm depressed now. But after I'm done being depressed after about 36 hours, what could I do in this office? I could sit down and write another script or try to knock out a 
short story or something, but that's just going to remind me of how upset I am about this project collapsing. <laughs> so I went down to the, you know, Rite Aid and got a whole bunch of really cheap art supplies and some good paper and brought it up. And this office had a big, long table. And I just laid out the paper and said, let me do something different. You know, I'd always like drawing. I said, let me, uh, uh, you know, create a comic book. Let me create a, a picture book. Let me just start drawing some characters that I have in my mind. And I had been thinking about these gargoyle characters. So I just, I started doing that 24-7. And that was how this whole story got, got birthed. So have you ever done anything like it before? Have you ever even considered doing a, um, a picture book prior to that moment? The only thing I did prior, and I'm not going to share it with you. <laughs> oh, no secrets? <laughs> I actually did a detailed graphic novel version of Chief Zabu to function as a storyboard when we shot that movie. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So I have like a 45 page, you know, very detailed each shot. Uh, you know, with the characters, you know, I'm doing caricatures of uh, Zach Norman and Alan Garfield, but, you know, not, not something back then anyone was interested in. And so, yeah, so doing that kind of stuff is, is something I find very relaxing doing drawing. Like I said, there's something, they're so exuberant. The colors are very bright, vibrant. And I can definitely, for, and I guess, what would you say the audience age is basically under, is under eight, I would imagine. Around yeah, eight. I thought it would be. I, that's what I thought it would be, and it is under eight. But some of the characters have clicked with kids who are like ten, eleven, and twelve. Uh, oddly enough, and, and that's an interesting story. We'll we'll get to in a second. It the, the characters have clicked with skateboarders. Oh, really? And so it became a thing for skateboarders to have these characters on their t-shirts, and uh, yeah, I mean that that's like a wonder to me. I've never been on a skateboard in my life. And and so it's kind of expanded the range of who are fans of the book. Well, I mean, that really is incredible. And like, and I think part of it is the characters are so likable just looking. I mean, Rocky's a really fun character as well. Yeah. And, and, and I, once again, I think it was interesting that you did go, I mean, do something for, like I said, that is kid oriented. Cause I do feel that it speaks well to them. And I and from an adult standpoint, I really do love what you did with the, the villain Donald Hairdo. I don't think there's any mystery that Donald right. who Donald Hairdo is supposed to represent. He's definitely right. one of the more famous. Archi- I think I made him too level. Too level. You should have had a real dialogue from the actual Donald Trump, and that would have fixed exactly. that pretty quick. <laughs> so why did what was it about Donald Trump that you felt he is a perfect villain for the destruction of? artistic architecture in New York? Well, the Trump Tower, uh, you know, I'm not expecting your audience to know about the architectural history of Manhattan, but Trump Tower, where it is, is on the site of what was a great old department store called Bonwit Teller. And Bonwit Teller was famous for its gargoyles. And when he announced he was going to knock down that building, which was built probably in the 1920s or 30s, he said that he would preserve the gargoyles, that they would be removed and uh, put someplace safe for a museum or collections or whatever. They were really very pretty sculptures that were on the facade of this great old uh, Art Deco building. And of course, in the middle of the night, he 
took them all down and had them crushed in a dump somewhere in New Jersey. And those, all those gargoyles have disappeared. So he seemed to be the kind of perfect uh, villain <laughs> for a guy who would be knocking down a building or stripping the facade to put up a mirror to himself, you know, and, and, and it says, and, you know, the guy, the guy thinks he's being altruistic. He says, well, I like to look at myself all day long. I assume everyone else likes to look at myself <laughs> all day long. So that, that's, you know, not you and me, Jeff, but he assumed everyone else did. So, yeah, so that's why it went to that character who, when I originally was doing it, again, was uh, sort of this uh, buffoonish villain in the, the world of New York. Uh, who knew he was going to become president of the United States? I mean, I did the book. You know, I mean, I mean, when you talk about the exuberance and the colors and this, that, you know, I mean, this stuff is all hand done with watercolor pencils and ink and magic marker and whatever. I didn't know that when you're supposed to do such a thing, a, a picture book or a graphic novel or a comic, that you're supposed to have like acetate cells where you do the drawings and then you do the dialogue and then <laughs> something else. So I did everything right on this heavy watercolor paper. I would do the drawings and then I would put the dialogue bubbles in there that I would, you know, write in my crazy uh, handwriting. And then when I would look at it, if I wanted to make a change, I would either get a bottle of white out and spill it on top of the page <laughs> or try to erase it or cut another piece of paper and scotch tape it on top of that. That's how unconscious I was about how I could have made my life easier. But in doing it that way, it has this weird do-it-yourself primitiveness that makes it kind of seem old-fashioned in a way, if, if not certifiably insane. <laughs> And, but I think because of that, well, because of a lot of reasons, it breaks a bunch of rules. It's longer than a conventional kid's book, and it's got more words, and the jokes are sometimes a little more sophisticated or, or kooky or, you know, go off into some place that's in my brain. You know, there was no publisher for this thing. I mean, I tried to get this thing published for probably 10 years, and that didn't happen, and I just put it away and left it in the drawer. And then at a certain point, I was going through all my stuff, and I remembered it, and I liked these characters a lot. I, I made a mock-up of it. I made it with, you know, just <laughs> going to Kinko's and printing out <laughs> copies of it with, you know, wire spiral binding, and they showed it around to a lot of people who liked it, but nobody wanted to publish it. And I was going to self-publish it myself and just, you know, make a few copies to give out to friends and then found a very cool publisher in downtown LA who happens to do very edgy material, very edgy material and mentioned to a friend of mine, you know, I'm looking for a kid's title. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, you know, I think I may have the book for you. And so I got to introduce this uh, book to this publisher, Rare Bird Books in LA, and they loved it and said, yeah, let's, let's put it out. But, you know, I could see where the whiteout is and the erasers and uh, the scotch tape. You're going to leave that in, right? And I said, <laughs> yeah. He said, great. <laughs> <laughs> we're the guys for you then, you know, we thought you, you, you wanted to slick this thing up, you know? So yeah. So it has a kind of a, a slap slap dash quality to it, 
which is which I think is another reason kids like it. You know, if you look at most kids' books, most, not all, but most, they're really designed to make the kid fall asleep. I mean, they they get a nice lesson of being nice to their friends and, you know, liking themselves and things like that. But at at the end of it, and that's the end, and the kid's supposed to be sleeping at this point. American Gargoyles, I think, will get them agitated and want to run around and do stuff. So, (laughs) you know, the drawings kind of speak to this kind of crazy energy and a certain primitiveness that kids look at it and say, oh, I could do it. You know, I could draw those characters. And so a lot of kids have been sending me their versions of the characters. And when they do, I post them up on Instagram or they make their own T-shirts with the characters on them. Well, so that's been, that's been a lot of fun for me. Well, I think one thing that you mentioned is one of the reasons why I think the book is so charming. It does have that homemade feel to it. And I think it, 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 you can feel more like the author's soul is coming out of the book. You know what I'm saying? It feels like you can see and experience the author's thoughts in that book. It doesn't have that processed, pre-printed, yeah. you know, almost sanit- sanitary, you know, sanitated, sanitary look to it. It has a very, you know, it's, it's, it feels like a book that was made for that kid. You know what I'm yeah, saying? I think absolutely. And, and, you know, when I would bring it to publishers originally, most of them said, oh, this is a good story. We'll go get an illustrator to illustrate it. And I said, well, no, that's not what I have in mind. And then as you mentioned, I mean, this is a funny story about how crazy humans are. And I'm using myself as the example of the crazy human. So I showed it to a guy who I knew pretty well, who had some influence in the publishing world. And his response was, Hey, Neil, this is real do-it-yourself, you know? And I was so offended by that comment. I, I don't think I talked to the guy for four years, and it was a very devastating comment until I realized that was a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I like that bell that went off suddenly. That, that, that was not uh, – I, I don't have like a drummer in the back that pumped uh, <laughs> up my jokes here. It just so happened an email came in. But, yeah, so, you know, here was a comment that the guy made that I was so offended about, which I should have been celebrating. And is that funny how sometimes that works where it sometimes it takes time – yeah. And a little bit of distance to realize why something worked better than even you realize it did for yourself. You know, and, and I think that's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, getting feedback is a trippy thing. And it's, you know, it's certainly nothing anybody teaches in a school. <laughs> yeah. And it's something you often never learn. But getting feedback is a heavy thing that everyone's always about, well, how am I processing how I'm feeling about the feedback rather than is this helpful feedback, negative feedback, or what can I take from it? And a lot of times it's not, you know, you just want, you give it to some, you don't really want feedback. You want somebody to tell you you're a genius and it's great. But when somebody gives you a negative reaction, you want to say, okay, that person didn't like it fine. I'm going to write off that person being able to help me. But if they didn't like it, why not? Not that I'm going to change it to make them like it. But often you find that somebody doesn't like something 
because you haven't been clear as to what the intention is. Gotcha. So if you write a thriller and somebody doesn't like it, it may be because they thought it was a comedy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, or if you write a comedy and nobody's laughing at it, often in the first two pages, you haven't set it up as a comedy. And, you know, so with this thing, there I was doing it myself. And then I was offended when somebody says, it's, it looks like you did it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's funny. So it's sort of like my day job is I'm a, I'm a high school teacher. Okay. Uh-huh. And it's my job to instruct, you know, obviously give feedback, but sometimes my job involves criticism. Uh-huh. And I find that if their pre- previous teachers didn't properly prepare them for how to handle criticism. They don't yeah. know how to properly handle it from me. And mm-hmm. I think the more they deal with me, the more they realize as long as the criticism is presented as help, this is something that works for you. This doesn't work against you. Criticism is helping you out. And, you know, and I think that's beneficial for everybody. I mean, my, I've written some stuff that's gotten criticized as well. And, you know, after usually the day or two later, sometimes I think to myself, Son of a bitch. They were right. The motherfucker was right. right. It, it means the next time I did a project, I thought about what the guy said. I was like, okay, maybe I shouldn't do this or that or be more observant in what I'm doing over here. And I think that's fan- that's a good lesson for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. You know, and <laughs> you, know, you just never know where you're going to get the right note from. It, you know, it's like, we all think we'll put it aside, we'll read it a second time, and then it'll be clear what needs to be fixed. But you do sort of have to have somebody else look at it. And if they're supportive of you, listen to what they have to say. And not necessarily change it, but listen to what they have to say and then think, okay, well, let's just see why, you know, maybe. Hmm, okay, yeah. Well, I mean... uh I guess because let's face it, any creation is an act of vanity on some level. Yeah. And it's hard to distance yourself from your own vanity. You right. know, we all like to think whatever we create is absolute genius. And sometimes it takes someone to go, well, because you weren't looking close enough, this needs to be fixed. And sometimes that fix is what made it later what you, you know, the greatness that it could be. Yeah. 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 Well, it, it, it's been just such a, a fun ride, you know, to, to have this book come out and to be reading it to, to libraries and school groups. And it's taken me to places, you know, that I, you know, the idea that I'm, suddenly I'm reading this book at the Skyscraper Museum to a bunch of kids in New York or the New York Public Library or in East LA or in, you know, Brooklyn somewhere. It, it, it's been just a, so outside of my comfort zone, but so much fun. Yeah. And like I said, and I think there's so much, fantastic aspects of that book and going back to a little bit what we said about donald trump and connecting to the idea of vanity is that he really did seem like the perfect villain in the reading of it and it connects so well to the to another theme which is once again he wants to make it into a mirror a mirror is inherently a vain pursuit you know seeing yourself and also the desire to create buildings that are larger and larger bigger and bigger to the detriment of everything necessarily around it is also an act of vanity as well. And that does seem to be the perfect theme for what you're talking about, the, the importance of recognizing the, the history and the art and everything else. And I thought, once again, Donald Herity was a, was a wonderfully um, perfect villain for that story. Well, you know, the only 
I mean, one of the challenges I set for myself, and it took a while to figure out how to tell the story to serve that challenge and to decide whether that challenge was worthy. And ultimately, I'm, I'm glad I went that way, is usually when these kind of stories are told at a certain eclipse of the moon, lightning strikes the building and the gargoyles come alive, you know, I yeah, mean, yeah, that's yeah. The, the standard thing. And what I said was, you know what, these things are made out of stone and they're actually never going to come to life. They're not going to move. Right, right. They're gonna, but how they're drawn is how they are. But somehow there's going to be a narrative that gets them moved and brings gets them away from home, brings them back home, but it's not going to entail them changing shape. The only human character in the story is the Donald Hairdo character. So he, you know, has fluid movement of his arms and, and, and whatnot, but the characters themselves don't actually move. And I think people are not even aware of the fact on a first reading that the characters as drawn are the same character all the way through the story. Okay. I just re re realized I never noticed they don't move. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm actually pretty good at picking up on things, but yeah, I actually just assumed they were mo moving around for some reason. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they, they get moved to a junkyard. They get moved back to the building. They, they communicate with each other, but their arms don't move. Their legs don't move. It's, and, and it's, it, it works for the thing. And, and I think that another thing I really liked about it as well is that you use the idea of the snow globe as um, uh -huh. a, a symbol for nostalgia. And once again, at least that was what I thought it meant to me because I always find snow globes as that fantastic thing that you buy and you just, you look at it and it's just this great memory in this thing that one again doesn't move, but you have so much memory that it becomes valuable because you see it there. What was the symbol of the snow globe for you when you wrote it? Well, I just, I just think they're so funny, I, you know, I mean, whether it's from Citizen Kane or whether it's from, you, you know, you come back from a, a, a vacation in the Caribbean and you got a snow globe with a, a palm tree inside. It, it, they're just such a delightful, wonderful world that gets created as a kid. They're kind of magical. And as an adult, it's like one of these kitschy things that, nobody's actually obnoxious about. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a kitschy thing that cracks everybody up, a snow globe, you know? I mean, you can't help yourself but pick it up and shake it. I don't care how, you know, how young you are, how old you are. Yeah. Um, I, I remember when I was trying to find the publisher, this other person, it got all the way up through the ranks and it got to somebody who was, you know, very important in the company. And I had a meeting with them and, and the guy said to me, you know, and this will be very telling about as you, you know, go up through the ranks. The guy said, you know, I really like the story and the characters. He said, but what's a snow globe? <laughs> and I looked at the guy like I thought he was putting me on. And he, he literally didn't know. That's how divorced he was from, you know, what was around him. And this is a person, you know, a thumbs up, thumbs down kind of character. So, you know, one never knows, but, you know, and then just also the idea, I mean, I'm such an amateur, the idea that I was going to tackle making a snow globe. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> something I was going to be able to execute. I mean, that that's kind of crazy, you know, but the idea that they 
kind of figure out a way to turn their uh, forgotten building into the world's biggest snow globe in the middle of the summer, that became, you know, all of, that was kind of a light bulb idea as a writer where, okay, that would, that would get people to remember this building. Well, like I said, the reviews on, on the book is, have been fantastic. For instance, the New York Times said, it's a raucous call out to a vision of New York City that is fading fast but clearly still has some mischievous life in it. And I thought that was a great review for the book. How does it feel to, after all this time to have, and after all those years of trying to get it published, to have such great praise and universal praise for this book? It, it's such a delight. I mean, it's, it's such a delight that, again, I'm sort of at a place in my life where it's not like, well, will that trigger this? And will this trigger that? You know, it was just like so nice to see my work being written about in the New York Times Sunday book section, you know, something I've read my whole life. Well, not, I'm not that high, you know, highfalutin, you know, not around reading the New York Times book review, but I mean, it's, yeah. it's obviously something that I'm aware of. And, you know, all of a sudden there's my name and, and, and my book, you know, they only, review, I don't know, uh, uh, 28 uh, kids books a year or something. And the fact that mine got picked out from the group is kind of wild. Part of it getting picked, though, goes back to that other subject of the skateboarders. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'll, I'll, I won't force you to prompt the question. But, you know, when the book got published, I assumed because it's about historic and architectural preservation that that world would embrace me and the book. It's, you know, historic and architectural preservation is not one of the more venerable kid book subjects. Right, right. So uh, the idea that this was a book about that, I assumed that world would just fall in love with me and fall in love with it. What I found out was, uh, you know, and I'm sure a lot of your readers or artists and performers or whatever, you know, there's a in crowd, there's a club, and there's and they're either in the club or not the club. So I'm a guy who's doing my first kids book. I'm not in the club of kids book writers or kids book, uh, you know, feature writers about a kid. You know, I'm completely a weird culty outsider. So I came up against that. And then I went out to all the different preservationist organizations. And a lot of them pushed back saying, well, we don't want to have anything to do with kids. You know, we're, you know, uh, people with bow ties and things like that. Or a lot of those people said, uh, gee, this uh, Donald Hairdo character, we get a lot of money from people like that. You know, we don't want to be attached to your book. Uh, So it was very difficult to figure out how I was going to get any kind of notoriety for the book. And, you know, about a mile or so from where I live is like the biggest West Coast uh, skateboard park, a place that is so far from my comfort zone, you have no idea. (laughs) But it's filled with kids on the weekend and their parents. And I said, well, you know, I got to find somebody to, <laughs> to look at this book. And maybe I made up a bunch of t-shirts for kids yeah. and went down to the park and the, the moms and dads were happy to have their kids in the, in the t-shirts. And I said to them, you know, if your kid wears a t-shirt, skateboards around, I'll give you a couple of bucks, which was 
amazing to these people because all anybody ever does is rip off these kids. You know, products come and they film them doing things and they give them a sock or the shoelaces or something. And then they turn those into multi-million dollar campaigns. So the people couldn't believe I was actually going to like pay their kid to do a modeling job. They said, okay, take the pictures. I said, I don't know how to shoot pictures. You take the pictures and send them to me. (laughs) So uh, these kids started skating around and uh, posting pictures of themselves in the characters from American Gargoyles. And one person who was kind of a more prominent sports photographer and her daughter is a kind of notable young skater and model. She was on, uh, uh, are you smarter than a fifth grader? And just really good people. They said, you know, we really like the book and nobody thinks of skateboarders and books and you did. And so we want to help you out. So I was talking to them. And then this young skater in her 20s, this Mariah Marquez skated over and said, what you got happening, you know? So I said this, that, and the other thing. And she said, well, I'll make a little video for your book. This sounds like fun, you know? And I said, okay, great. So she made like a little spot about the book of her wearing the T-shirt. And next thing you know, it got into this like real high-end fashion shop in LA, my T-shirts, which was the weirdest thing. Well, so... The New York Times got interested in the book because they saw that skateboarders were wearing the characters. Nice. And skateboarding and readers, again, is not a a normal connection. So then they reached out, and that's how they got a copy to the desk. I mean, if they didn't like the book, they wouldn't have written about it, but they happened to like the book and, and, and write about it. So next thing, when they got into the New York Times, so, you know, I, I circled back to this, this skater, Mariah Marquez, and said, gee, you know, you really helped me out. I mean, you really, really helped me out. Here's a couple of bucks. Go make a movie about you, you know? Blow my mind, blow your mind. And uh, she disappeared. I went out of town. My wife and I went out of town. And suddenly the movie you saw, you know, <laughs> that showed up. And <laughs> it, it, it's kind of amazing. I mean, I wasn't there for that shoot. I mean, I, you know, I, you know, the producer of it, but you know, she wrote it, directed it, and uh, it, it's become like the most viewed uh, short film on a, on a site called Documentary Weekly. And it's uh, playing on all these wild sites in Europe right now. And uh, so it, it's, this American Gargoyles thing has triggered a whole bunch of very interesting things in my life and in in some other people's lives. Well, I definitely want to talk about the movie that you referenced, but I do have to, I want to ask one more question about the American Gargoyles. Because it has done so well, and it sounds like you really enjoyed doing it, are there other children books you're now considering making, or was this a one and done kind of thing? No, there's some other things I'm considering making. I'm, I'm sort of what I'm in the middle of right now is a negotiation because a, a kind of major kids media company has discovered American Gargoyle. So we're negotiating an option agreement now. And uh, they're a company out of Toronto and Dublin and New York. And they have, you know, some plans for this thing. Uh, I can't say the name of them now until the deal is done, but, you know, they want to do it as a one-off special. So that's kind of what I'm focused on, kind of marshalling to them how this thing is both the book and it could be, you know, the characters in their world can be bigger than the book. So it's kind of interesting how life seems to just play out that way, that, you know, you, you, this fantastic idea, how that idea came about, mm-hmm. you, the skaters, how that idea of marketing to them came about, 
how Mariah Marquez then came about. I mean, it, it's such a, an interesting series of events. Have you ever looked back and said, this just felt like, like a faded thing that had to happen? No, be, you know, I'm kind of open to talking to people and crazy things happening. And, uh, you know, I'm at a very early stage of my life. I stopped being paranoid about people are going to steal my ideas. So I'm not going to share what I'm doing with people. So what I, what, what I do, I share with people. And then some people take it to the next step for me. Occasionally, yeah, I get ripped off. Occasionally, there's dead ends. But occasionally, things sort of line up in, in a weird way, or not a weird way, just because I'm kind of curious. And uh, I mean, very early on in my career, I got a lot of lectures that I was not focused on one version of who I am. You know, I remember agents earlier on saying, are you a comic writer? Are you a serious writer? I mean, are you a TV writer? Are you a movie writer? Are you a playwright? You have to decide what it is. Otherwise, we don't know how to sell you. And indeed, they didn't. (laughs) (laughs) But, But that's kind of who I am. I kind of flick from interest to interest. And a few of them stick. So when you put a... A kind of wide net out, you know, most people think what you're doing is stupid or not very interesting. And, and every once in a while, somebody comes along and says, oh, what you're doing is interesting. Could we do a project together? And then in most cases, you do a project with this person who's new in your life or from your past or from your future, and it doesn't work out. But every once in a while, it does. And when it does, it's it's fun and surprising. But you can't wait for the perfect setup because you'll be waiting forever. And often it's actually the perfect setup. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to be involved in short films, art films, avant-garde films. And it was all with the perfect setup and nothing happened. Here's something. I meet this uh, a skater down in Venice Beach and she comes up with an award-winning film. You know, all she needed was a little space and a little bread to to be able to make a movie. So it's, you know, you can't wait for the stars to line up. You got to, forgive me for saying you got it, if you (laughs) want to. (laughs) If you want to, you know, you, 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 you could put out a bunch of ideas and see who sparks to it and not be that upset if nobody does. So, that's, to bring it up, Mariah Marquez, she, you were a producer of, a, of the movie that she made, the small short film called Diary of Being Uncomfortably Comfortable. So, right. for our listeners, what is it? It's the story of a woman from, a young woman from a small town in Texas who had a, a, a quite awful disease, affliction, condition that uh, kept her in hospital for most of her teenage years who then, as soon as she could function on her own, hit the road and wound up in the Pacific Northwest where things got kind of screwy and wound up living in her vehicle in Venice Beach, meeting a bunch of other girls down there and forming an all-women skateboard collective called Girl Swirl, which is now something of a 
bit of a national and international phenomenon of girl skaters who are not competitive, but are supportive of each other and teach kids. And they've been down to Mexico to migrant camps and teaching kids there. And it's a story of somebody who's had a, a kind of very tough life done in a style that's very artistic, quite charming, quite funny, and quite uplifting, ultimately, in 13 minutes. I mean, a critic out of New York called it uh, the ultimate uh, road movie in 13 minutes. <laughs> uh, you know, a critic in Paris calls it, he says it, it breaks all norms of uh, documentaries and filmmaking. <laughs> it's a picture that starts, I mean, you're looking at this thing and you think it's a pretty girl Instagram post and about two and a half minutes in it, makes a very sharp left turn and goes off into someplace pretty weird. Uh, you'll, you'll, if, if you look up Documentary Weekly, it's a free site that uh, you can get a link from Instagram. It's on Facebook. And, and punch in Uncomfortably Comfortable or Mariah Marquez. You, you can watch the movie there. Well, I, I thought I really enjoyed it that you let me watch it. I really appreciate it. And I felt it was, once again, it was a great profile in the ideas of strength and perseverance. And yeah. in when it was completed, what lessons did you want the viewers to receive watching it? Well, just whatever lesson she brought forward, you know, and the lesson that she brings forward in the in the film is that you're the author of your own story. I mean, your life is your story and you're the author of that story and you should feel free to write that book. And you know that, that you have no idea what life's going to throw at you and you have no idea who you're going to meet along the way and we're here taking the the trip is short and we take it one time and that's i think what why the film has translated to a bunch of people in in different cultures you know it played at a a, a, a very arty festival here in southern california where it won an award as best director i mean this is a person who never went to college or went to film school or anything like that you know but the the style that she shoots it in is a throwback to a certain kind of avant-garde filmmaking with being kind of very entertaining and charming you know but then it got picked up by these european film lovers particularly documentary weekly that featured it where it became its their most watched short film. And then it got picked up by the Paris Surf and Skateboard Festival, which is a very sort of artistic and very political film festival in Paris. And Paris was open for a couple of weeks from COVID and they played the film there on a big screen. Unfortunately, Mariah couldn't get there. We couldn't get her there, you know, because of travel restrictions. And it was so successful, won an award there that they played it the following weekend to a packed house. And and now they have it on a on a French site where people can see it. It's got subtitles in French now, which is well. <laughs> and, uh, and and now it's invited to be playing in May in 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 Italy, in Milan. So I think she'll be able to take that trip and continue writing her story there. You know, for me to be, I mean, this is kind of a funny story. A friend of mine had it who's very successful, uh, a filmmaker and also a post-production guy. He liked the movie a lot. And so he offered to help get the subtitles on because it's a little, it's trickier than one would think to put subtitles on a movie, even if it's just 13 minutes long. And it's all a narration. And afterwards, he was congratulating me. And I said, well, it's, you know, it was fun to be like a producer. 
And the guy got very angry and shook his finger in my face. And he said, you know, Neil, what the hell's the matter with you? (laughs) What do you mean? He said, why do you say it was fun to be like a producer? You were the producer. (laughs) (laughs) I said, well, I always talk like that. He said, well, don't do that. He said, it's like, uh, you know, if you do that, if you say I was kind of like the producer, people are going to think, you weren't the producer. Somebody else was. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, so, go ahead. For, yeah. So for me, just even accepting the role of being a producer, I mean, this thing is like, you know, this is like the feathers in a pillow. This, I mean, the movie is pretty deep, but it's not, you know, but for me to be able to be a producer was a lot of fun was was really really a lot of fun work with a director you know put together some kind of campaign to so that the movie would get seen you know protecting the interest of the of the creator of the film and because it's very tricky you know somebody's making a movie about themselves right away it's very tricky because it's got to straddle and she was very aware of this the sort of me, me, me ego thing of it, and then the sort of filmmaking of it, and then the sort of universal story of it. So, you know, those kind of creative conversations to have, it was great fun. And it was, you know, particularly great fun when it was all you know, over the phone. I mean, this thing got put together during the, the pandemic. Well, like I said, I mean, obviously it's done extremely well. Um, it won... Best first time director at the Venice Film Festival, uh, Venice Film no, Institute. Venice, not Venice Film Festival. Venice Film Institute. Sorry. Art Film Festival that's right. part of the Venice Institute of Contemporary Arts in LA. Yeah. And, and I think another reason why I think it, 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 it resonates so well is that you really feel like there's a, an openness of, with Mariah Marquez. There's actually a moment in the movie where she's nude and she's, this, uh, she's moving around and she, you get it like almost like that symbolizes how much she exposes herself and her emotions to you as the audience. And I think that really does resonate well and connects you to her in a way that not a lot of movies do. And I, and I think as an audience member, you, you can feel that it's tangible. Yeah. And I mean, I was, my wife and I were 3000 miles away upstate New York when she filmed that. And she said, Neil, I'm going to do something. I got an idea. I don't know if you're going to like it. Uh, you know, hope it doesn't shake you up. <laughs> <laughs> so we say, well, you know, whatever it is, man, it's your movie. And, and it seems like it's some kind of special effect thing, but everything in that very brief moment is done with shadows and projections and a projector projecting onto a sheet. I mean, it's all, you know, 1914 filmmaking of everything's practical that you see in that, in the film. And I think that kind of do it yourself quality of it, you know, I mean, it's shot on a cracked iPhone, you know, so, so, and edited by her on, on an knife, you know, you know, on a smartphone. It's not like she has access to all kinds of editing equipment or film equipment. And so to do something that, you know, was that revealing, when I saw it the first time, it was like, wow, you know, a, a, a bit revealing, bit honest, and, and, a, and, and very also genuine and innocent. Yeah, and I really like the, there's a quote in the movie that I really like. It, she says, I realize how powerful my voice is. 
that I have to use my voice to empower other people and use my experiences to help guide other people. And I feel that it summarizes not only her life so well, but I felt it was like knowing an important message, but I really felt that was kind of the theme that she was going with in that movie. I think it is an important one for listeners to hear. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's truly a genuinely beautiful little 13-minute trip. And people have been, they're, they're drawn to it because this is somebody who hasn't had minor problems to deal with. And I'm not going to, you'll look at the movie. This is somebody who's had some real major stuff in her life. And the fact that she's able to process it the way she does and want to entertain us is just wonderful. So how can our listeners best help Mariah? Well, I think to, to support that film, I mean, if there's a festival in, in your town, wherever that is, I mean, I'm going to be honest, oddly enough, uh, most American festivals didn't understand the movie. But, you know, festivals have been reaching out from uh, Sheffield, England, and Birmingham, England, and Barcelona, and Paris, and, and Milan. And I, I think the... You know, I got a lot of reasons why sometimes movies don't get into festivals, but uh, this is a movie that, that, you know, you should seek out. And if you uh, see it, you could see it on document on the documentary uh, weekly site. You may have to hunt it down. They put up a lot of movies there, mostly European movies. I would say, you know, they're probably 90 percent. English language European movies or, or subtitled in English, a doc weekly or documentary weekly. And, and, you know, if you like the movie, you know, uh, support it by uh, mentioning to people who have uh, film clubs or, you know, again, right now, it's a tough time. Probably more people are seeing it now on the websites than are seeing it if they, if theaters were open. So it's actually a, a, a cool moment for this film. Is there any plans to produce a follow-up story to see where Mariah is now? Well, yeah, I mean, there's other things that, you know, she wants to express cinematically. And, you know, they just uh, reached out to her, actually, because it was shown in Paris from Elle Elle Magazine in France is doing a a little story about her. There's a wonderful book that just came out called Skate Like a Girl, that's a beautiful tabletop book about women skateboarders. The book was produced in Barcelona, but it's available here in the States. It's called uh, Skate Like a Girl by Carolina Mel is the person who put the book together. So uh, she's featured in, in that book quite a bit. And, uh, you know, who, who knows where life's going to take any of us? So are, are you going to be... You know, her website, you know, she's on Instagram at, I think it's called Mariah Rose on Instagram. And she's always putting up something weird, esoteric every day. Are you going to be producing any, any of those potentials? I would like to. Yeah, we're, we're talking about a, a number of things. Also, you know, trying to, trying to keep the uh, overhead as low as we can. I'm not a guy with huge resources, so we have to think, you know, kind of creatively. One of the things she and I are talking about putting together is a kind of a photo comic book, a a photo. There was a thing that was 
I don't know if it was popular, but a thing that was done in the late 40s and 50s, a little bit in the 60s, it was done over in Italy, sometime in America, also in the 1920s, were these photo comics, where the comics were actually still photographs that had dialogue bubbles. Well, that's cool. And some of them were quite lurid, and some of them were romances, and some of them were kind of film noirish. And so there's one such project that she and I are gearing up for now that we're hoping, you know, once we can deal with actors and movement and travel, you know, I I would want her to be the director of that. So that's something, you know, we'll definitely be doing, you know, looking forward into 2021. Well, hopefully when you do that, you come back on the show and and talk about that as well, that project. I'd love to. Love to. That would be great. Thank you so much, Mr. Cohen. It was fantastic talking to you. I do hope our uh, readers check out American Gargoyles. Once again, fantastic uh, book. I really thought it was well done. It's available anywhere, American (laughs) Gargoyles. (laughs) (laughs) Please uh, please look up, um, it has its own website. Look up that as well. And also look up um, Uncomfortably Comfortable or The Diary of Comfortably Comfortable. Once again, a very fantastic short film. And it was a great pleasure, as always, to speak with you, Mr. Cohen. Well, it's Neil, not Mr. Cohen, if anybody wants to contact me directly. And just keep listening to Jeff, because this guy knows where it's at. (laughs) Thank you so much. You're fantastic, sir. That was fun, man. So thank you, Neil, so much for coming back on the show. I really appreciate that. I love having guests come back. It's one of my favorite things in the world is to see a guest come on once, wanting to come back on and talk about some more stuff. But if you want to check out American Gargoyles, head over to AmericanGargoyles.com. Again, it's AmericanGargoyles.com. Check that out or hit them up on Instagram at American Gargoyles. Go give them a follow, give them a like, give them a share, give them a comment, comment and see if you find them through us. It'd be awesome. Uh, do all that. Thank you again, Neil, for coming on. And uh, that was awesome. Now, if you like that, if you like hearing us talk to people like Neil, head over to Flavors.com and check out all of our back issues because there's so much stuff up there for you to check out that you'd be remiss and sad if you didn't because with 560 plus episodes, you're definitely going to want to go check something out because something there is going to be for you, something you're going to love. Maybe it's the previous episode with Neil Cohen. Maybe it's an episode with J. Michael Straczynski. Maybe it's uh, Kenner Kenner talking about random stuff. I don't know, but you might love it. And if you do, you should check it out and you should share it and share it with everybody because sharing is caring. Now, while you're on the website, check out our reviews and previews and articles and all the fun stuff we have up there. Check out all of our other shows like like Bridge and the Geekdoms and Funny Book Forensics and Nerds from the Crypt and Haphazard Adventures and Watch the CR Radio and so much more. Check all those out because there's a lot of fun, awesome stuff up there. Now, lastly, two last things, three last things. One, go to our store, buy something from us, t-shirt, a face mask, a hoodie, look fly as hell, help us out. Can we get a couple dollars from that? Go to scpod.us slash discord and join our public discord server. Come chat with us. And very, very lastly, don't forget that in Notions of Podcast, we are Cthulhu. And as Cthulhu commands you to do, open the mind and read more. 